Hello. In the 1980 movie Tom Horn, factually based on a real person living at the tail end of the American Wild West, Steve McQueen took the titular role as a man executed for a murder that many said, and still say to this day, Tom Horn didn't actually commit. From his cell following his arrest, he gazes longingly into the distance and his beloved hills. Unaccustomed to being unable to come and go as he pleases, he breaks out of jail and attempts to flee, only to be recaptured and subsequently convicted. Uh, looking from my window here at the barn across the Wire Valley into the Black Mountains beyond, I do not, I am pleased to say, share the same sense of incarceration as Mr Horn, but I do empathise with his desire, and though the example is almost trite in comparison, the daily travails, duties and routines of my own time here on Shakespeare's Mortal Coil often conspire in tempting me just to drop everything and head for the hills for a while instead. I am, of course, not alone in wanting to do so. Who amongst us hasn't, on more than one occasion, succumbed to the human condition and that timeless cycle where, at some juncture in all of our lives, the grass truly does seem greener? Even though when we do take that leap of faith, and despite the received wisdom telling us that it's not all a bed of roses, the myth is still inevitably tempered by the reality of what actually lies on the other side. Yet that is still no bar to our imaginings and our longing. Over half a century ago, as a very young boy, I can remember from the safety of my mother's arms, looking from the front gate on our modest home in Blackheath, across the valley towards what was then known as Wally. The sights and sounds of the steam engines shunting and puffing. <laughs> steam trains. I'm showing my own age there now. And the smells. Oh, those smells, how they still reek pungent in my nostrils. You see, there was a chemical works at Albury a short distance away that, as I recall, made amides and amines on set days. One smelt of fish and the other smelt of rats. My long-departed grandmother, who lived with us, used to pray on wash day for the wind to be blowing away from us, lest the smell penetrated her clean washing. If her entreaties to the weather gods were unsuccessful, then we could at least tell what day it was by the fragrance attached to our clothes. And no, I'm not making this up. We could also set our clocks by the regular explosions at the hailstone quarry on the rally hills behind us, when the shattering retort would signify yet another slew of impenetrably tough rally rag stone was ready to be hauled from the gaping hole and taken away for construction work. Those were the days that we still had deep mining at Baggeridge, and when huge town-sized smokestack factories such as the F.H. Lloyd Foundry, Chance Glassworks, Bilson Steelworks, all dominated the skyline and every town boasted its own industry, with a myriad of firms and companies filling the still ubiquitous canal narrowboats with everything from nails to enamelling to chains in a frenzy of activity which even at that late time in our industrial development, still promoted the notion that if it wasn't made in Birmingham and the black country, then it wasn't made anywhere else in the world. This was all heady stuff for someone of my tender years, and I was, as yet, ill-equipped to assimilate anything other than receive norms. But nevertheless, I did feel a primeval hankering to learn more about possible alternatives, a different way, the other side. A few years later, as I sat in my classroom at what was then the Rowley Regis Grammar School, long since gone and latterly rebuilt as a college, 
my occasional inattentions on some wearisome topic or other would see my gaze diverting out the window and across the Stour Valley to the steep wooded slopes of Clenton Walton Hills. The otherwise clear view was often augmented, if that's the right word, especially in the height of summer, by a crepuscular red glow sitting like a huge inverted bowl and covering a large swathe of Brawley Hill, with the steelworks and Roanoke steel pad as the source of the glow at its epicentre. Across the other side of the road from there, on a site now occupied by the Moore Centre, lay Marsh and Baxter. It closed in the late 1970s, and so nowadays I address probably my third generation of schoolchildren, who cannot believe how a pig would go in one end of this gargantuan factory and a sausage come out of the other. All this and more, right across a black country that's all but disappeared as we knew it until quite recent times. It's not all bad news, of course, and there are any number of modern industries, retail outlets and services that have stepped into the breach. The black country is still an inspirational place and has much to offer to those who live and work here, albeit in a markedly changed set of parameters. Plus, of course, we have the legendary black country hospitality. And not forgetting our uh, distinctive cuisine of uh, scratchings, faggots and peas, boonie pie, grotty dick and other quite unique culinary delights. It's a wonderful region and as a black countryman to the core, I for one am prepared to stand toe-to-toe with anyone who would dare suggest otherwise. Mm. But those industries of yesteryear, the noises, the smells, the pollution, work hazards, social conditions, poor housing, a land described by traveller Elihu Burritt in his 1868 book Walks in the Black Country, and I quote, Black by day and red by night cannot be matched for vast and varied production by any other space of equal radius on the surface of the globe. It is a section of titanic industry kept in murky perspiration by a set of tubal canes and vulcans, week in, week out, and often seven days to the week. Well, <laughs> that being the case, little wonder that, uh, like our introductory character Tom Horn, its populace looked either spiritually or temporally out from its confines to where the grass was both literally and truthfully very much greener. And so no surprise at the popularity of the likes of the Kinvalite Railway, uh, which between 1901 and 1930 was lifeline to the thousands of slaves of industry who sought the brief respite of a trip to Kinva, its green environs, and that cathartic intoxication of sweet, fresh air. It's all changed dramatically. Nowadays my clothes don't smell a rat and I can breathe easier. My windows aren't rattled by explosions. The slums and mud houses are largely gone and people don't routinely die in the pits and mines anymore. But just take time to speak with those who still recall those days. And there are lots of them because it wasn't really all that long ago. And see if, like me, you can often detect the slightest tremble in the voice, the merest moistening at the corner of the eye, the near imperceptible twitch at the side of the lips, as the reminiscences flow about whether that capricious grass really is now greener after all, at least as far as our culture, heritage, roots and personal life journeys are concerned. Yes, it has all changed. But is it all, every bit of it, for the better, is it? And, having irrevocably crossed the River Styx, 
I say irrevocably because we fixed the price, we paid the ferryman, and we got to the other side, so there's no return. Do we not now, in some obdurate way, actually long for at least the more palatable aspects of what we left behind in our wake? Such is the enigma of the human psyche. Might it be that we imagine the grass has since assumed a slightly more lush tinge on what is now the other side, the side we left behind? Well, rather like Tom Horn, I reckon that even after all these intervening years, the jury is still yet to be wholly convinced on that one. Enjoy your black country, and do join me again soon for more tales from the barn.